History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 359th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we are going to your home state of California. Woohoo! This is a location that was suggested to us by Anna Frias, and that's the Zalad House. I can't wait. Yeah, it's a, a very cute looking little house. It looks like it should be haunted. It's got that wonderful mansard roof on it. Love it. Which always reminds me of the Adams Family Home. <laughs> Most definitely. Before we get into that, we have some spooktacular people to welcome into our spooktacular crew. We have Hope, Amy, Storm, who ends her name with an E, Catherine with a C, Savannah, Dwight, Susan, Cresty, Dylan, and Reagan, who is an artist at Water of Whimsy. I encourage you to check out her stuff. I absolutely adore it. Thanks for joining us in the crew, guys. And now, this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by John Michaels. Poppy tea, or what was once called poppy water, was used as an analgesic, antidiarrheal, and it had sedative effects as it was basically a narcotic. Alice Blunden had the misfortune of consuming too much of this poppy water in 1674 at her local pub. She immediately collapsed into a deep sleep. Or was it a deep sleep? Her family summoned a doctor and he surmised she was dead when he put a mirror under her nose and no steam was blown onto the mirror. Alice's husband was a wealthy merchant, and he was away at the time of her death. When he heard about her demise, he requested that family wait for his return before holding the funeral. The doctor thought this was a horrible idea, and so the family decided it would be best to bury her quickly. This was done at the Holy Ghost Cemetery. The cemetery was park-like, and shortly after the funeral, a couple of boys were playing there when they heard ghastly sounds coming from a fresh grave. They ran to report this to their headmaster, and he had them punished for making up stories. The man must have had second thoughts, though, because he went to check out the grave the next day. It had now been three days for Alice in the grave, but she was still making some weakened noises. The townspeople quickly dug her back up and found her covered in bruises and blood from her attempts to free herself from the grave. She had exhausted herself so much that the people thought she was now dead for sure. We're not sure a doctor would have decided something different based on the record here. Mrs. Blunden was reinterred and a guard was posted but he left in the middle of the night to do some drinking. The following morning, Alice was dug up again just to ensure that she was indeed dead. And now her face and hands were clawed heavily as she had attacked herself, finding that she was still in the grave. And now she really was dead. Her husband brought suit, but nothing came of it. A blue plaque at the Holy Ghost Cemetery now memorializes a story that certainly is odd.
grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. In the month of November, on the 4th in 1879, American humorist Will Rogers was born in the Cherokee Nation Indian Territory, which would eventually become Oklahoma. Rogers himself was one-eighth Cherokee. He got his start in entertainment as a trick roper in Wild West shows. Then he moved on to vaudeville, where his true fame would start, and he eventually ended up with Sigfield Follies. At this time, he started incorporating some ad-lib humor, which developed into a satire that he is most well-known for. Rogers would go on to act in 21 movies and write newspaper columns. His voice became well-known as he appeared on the radio many times, and he was easily recognized for his customary cowboy hat that he wore pushed back on his head. Rogers traveled back and forth across the United States doing lectures, and he traveled to many countries. He once said, When I die, my epitaph, or whatever you call those signs on gravestones, is going to read, I joked about every prominent man of my time, but I never met a man I didn't like. I'm so proud of that. I can hardly wait to die so it can be carved. Unfortunately, his death would come at just 55 in 1935 when the airplane he was flying in with aviator Wiley Post crashed near Point Barrow, Alaska. The Zalit House in Porterville, California is like a time capsule glimpse into the life of a family a family who suffered much tragedy in the house. This home is unique in that the Zalid family were the only family to live in this mansion, and it is furnished with their belongings. Several family members died here, and it seems to have trapped their spirits. Paranormal tours are offered, and Ghost Adventures has investigated the house. Some of the activity is fairly mundane, but there also is a darkness here that seems to be connected to a chair. Join us as we share the history and haunts of the Zalid house. Porterville, California is a small town. It was the fall of 1858 when the Butterfield Overland Stage Line established a stage stop at Goodhue's Crossing near the Tule River in 1858, which would eventually become the city of Porterville. The city was named after Porter Putnam, who founded it when he decided to start a ranch there. And apparently his parents were into alliteration. Porter described his journey to this spot in his journal. Country damned rough. Weather very cold. Stage riding is disagreeable. Plenty of whiskey aboard. A jolly set. <laughs> I love that. You can endure any kind of a ride as long as you have plenty of whiskey. I guess so. You know, when you think about these people who rode around in the stagecoaches, how uncomfortable that must have been. I'm thinking about it right now with the headache that I've been dealing with for a few days. I would be miserable. If you didn't already have a headache, you definitely would by the end of that trip. And then if it's like cold, damp weather. Then Diane would really be pissed. Yes. Mad. Sorry. The Tule River was very important to the development of the town and to immigrants who passed through. Where the river is today is very different than where it was in 1861. A heavy rain came through for weeks and the entire valley was flooded. This caused the Tule River to permanently change its course and moved a mile south of its original riverbed. That is a huge distance. That really is. Gosh. 
because I always love when you hear that it's like it moves slightly about a mile away. I'm like a mile, especially, you know, we run. It's a distance. It's quite a distance, especially for that large of a body of water. Yeah. To reroute its course. It's just weird. It's amazing how that happens. That riverbed still exists today. Porter came up with a unique idea to grow his new town. He offered free lots to anybody willing to start a business. That's very clever. Porterville soon was known as a wild saloon town, which means they had a lot of saloons and a lot of brothels. (laughs) I was just going to suggest that. (laughs) By the 1910s, Porterville was a city that was becoming very prosperous and growing quickly. Southern Pacific Railroad had laid down a line that passed right into Porterville at this time. Some of the prosperity for the city came from the fact that magnesia was found in the hills surrounding the city, and this rare mineral was used for the lining of furnaces and making paper. I had no idea that you used it for making paper. I didn't either. John Zalad built the Zalad home for his wife, Mary, and their three children, Pearl, Annie, and Edward, in 1891, which is located on North Hockett Street and Morton Avenue. The Zalad family had migrated from Bohemia, which is today the Czech Republic. And John started off with a restaurant called Delmonico Restaurant in the town of Tulare. This was half restaurant, half saloon. It thrived while the railroad had a yard in that town. But when it moved, business slowed and he decided to move. John opened the John Zalad Saloon, which had gambling in a back room. He joined in on some of the high stakes card games and became wealthy, which is how he had money for building the home. The architectural style is Baroque French with a mansard roof and it was built from red brick. This wasn't the first home the Zalads built in Porterville, but Mary refused to live in the southeast area where they built, so John had this new home built. The house looks to be fairly small and only has four bedrooms. Yeah, first when you think about somebody who's building these mansions and things, you're kind of thinking of something bigger. Of course, we have our McMansions here nowadays. (laughs) Right. But when you look at it from the front, it's not even that wide of a house. So I think it kind of goes back maybe a little ways. Because when I looked at the front of it, I'm like, that looks like a really teeny kind of house. Yeah, it does. Pearl Zalad was the last family member to live in the house, and she spent the last decade of her life in the house. And when she died in 1970, she donated it in the grounds to the city of Porterville. It took some time for Pearl's wishes to be honored, because a man named Joe Witt, his brother Marcus Witt Jr., and Marcus's son Marcus Witt III, claimed that Pearl had willed the property to them. Joe claimed that he had befriended Pearl and she'd grown so fond of him that she changed her will so that he would get the Zalad house. The version of the will he presented was ruled a fraud and in 1973, the three men were arrested and convicted on fraud and forgery charges. Pearl had requested that the home be converted into a museum, and that is exactly what happened. The museum opened on May 2, 1977. A friend of hers, who was a longtime resident, Albert Conda, said of Pearl, she was a very bright lady with a great sense of humor, but she was never a social butterfly around town. She had a few quality friendships and never saw a need for much more than that. Well, that sounds like you and I. I was just going to say that. The house not only has a wonderful collection of antiques, but there was also donated one of the largest collections of clothing from the 1890s to the mid-1950s. One piece was a silk ribbon dress that still had tags on it indicating that it cost $450. Which nowadays, I mean, it was probably a three, dollars $4,000 dress. Exactly. Some of the furnishings and artwork hail from the Orient. Annie and Pearl were creators. Annie was a painter and some of her work is on the walls. Pearl did needlework, and the pillows and chairs in the house are upholstered with her designs. There are brochures in the house that are a testament to the sisters taking two trips around the world. Yeah, so they were definitely well-traveled. And again, as we said in the intro, what is amazing about this house, you know, we've been in a ton of these old homes that have antiques in them. I know our listeners do the same thing. You're lucky if you get mm, two, three, maybe four pieces that are from the original family. Exactly. 
this is everything. It was as if they just left all their stuff and it's there. And luckily her desire to create it into a museum was honored and that they found that that quote unquote will was a fraud. (laughs) Exactly. And that the family held on to all this stuff because we're kind of a throwaway society nowadays. We're not going to have a lot of and I don't know that we'd ever call any of our stuff antiques because our stuff is so cheaply made nowadays. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we don't save these kinds of things so that you'd have a, a home full of this stuff. So really something that I'd want to see. Tragedy would hound this family. Mary Jane Zalid, the mother, developed tuberculosis. And in 1912, she succumbed to the disease. In 1917, William Brooke was married to Annie Zalid, so he was John Zalid's son-in-law, and he was at the Pioneer Hotel on this particular day, sitting in the lobby. He was confronted by a woman named Julia Howe. Brooke had been making disparaging comments about her, and she was very angry. So Kelly, here's what we have going on, and we've experienced this many times ourselves, too, where you have a guy who takes a liking to you. You're married, he's married, and you aren't interested. Well, he gets really put out because you aren't showing any interest in him when he's flirting with you. And so instead of being a guy who should not be... Taking the high road. (laughs) He decides to be a jerk about it. So he starts spreading all these rumors about her. And of course, it's not just she's a mean person or angry person or whatever, or maybe a B word kind of thing. It's she's a loose woman. She has low standards and even claiming that they were having an affair. So you've got all this stuff going around and she ends up having a nervous breakdown. She goes out and buys herself a gun thinking she's done. She's going to go ahead and commit suicide because she just can't deal with these rumors. She comes into the Pioneer Hotel. I guess she was going to rent a room and off herself in one of the rooms or something. Well, here is William Brooke sitting in a (laughs) rocking chair right there in the lobby. (laughs) And she's got a loaded gun and she's ready to be done with this world anyway. So she confronts him, and I don't know what words were said, but we do know that four bullets were fired at him, and one of those bullets even pierced through the chair, and the bullet hole is still there to this day. The chair made its way to the museum that he was shot in and ultimately died in. The really crazy part of the story is that the newspapers reported that Julia Howe claimed that her subconscious mind directed what she had done. She got up on the stand there and she said that her subconscious mind directed the fatal shot without her bidding. So basically her defense was that she'd been possessed when she murdered Brooke. Okay. The court ruled that it was justifiable homicide. She was possessed by anger is what she was possessed by. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought, you know, I don't know that they bought the story of I was out of my mind because actually I guess that would be kind of the heat of the moment. But even nowadays we'd call that manslaughter. You'd get a lower degree of murder charge or something. But to have it be a justifiable homicide, I wonder if they just ruled it that way because he had so defamed her and disparaged her with his commentary that it's like he deserved what he got. Well, I mean, it kind of sounded that way. Not that I'm saying somebody should die for that, but that's a pretty big deal to go around spreading those types of rumors. And so now it's amazing that that rocking chair has found its way into this home. And of course, it said that this chair is now cursed. I don't know if it's because he cursed it as he was dying or if it's just cursed because he died in the chair. But we've heard many stories of cursed chairs. So if that is what's going on with this chair, it's not a unique story. No, definitely not. It's a possibility. Have you ever sat in a cursed chair? I wouldn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, purposefully, let me put it that way. No, I don't believe I have. I did do it once. We were on a ghost tour in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and we were in one of these old homes, and in one of the upper rooms, they had a chair that somebody had died in, and they said... Anybody who sits in that chair usually has some kind of an issue or something like that. 
And so she was like, any volunteers? Kind of like from the Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. And, well, I volunteered. <laughs> and I and sat in the chair. Is that, that your excuse today and you're sticking with it? For yes, anything that, that, that is exactly is what's you? happened to me. <laughs> I am totally disturbed now because of that. <laughs> I'm actually, I died and I've just been a ghost. So I have literally been a ghost host for History Ghost Bump. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing happened. I didn't feel strange or anything like that. So Edward would be the next family member to die. And this occurred in 1922. The official story is that he was out riding a horse and got kicked in the head by the horse. However, there are some who claim that he was rustling cattle and a posse of local vigilantes killed him. Edward is thought to have been a guy who got himself into a lot of trouble. He ran liquor to local tribes, which was illegal at the time. The saddle that Edward was riding in when he died is on display in the house. So now we got two things connected to either murders or definitely deaths that are now in this home. This blow caused Pearl and her father, John, to leave the home and move to Los Angeles, where Annie had moved after her husband, William Brooke, had been killed. They stayed there until John died in 1944. Pearl moved back to the house in 1962, and as we said, she died in 1970. On the upper floor, there's a spirit that is believed to be the malevolent energy in the house. Could that be why Pearl lived only in the downstairs portion of the house? She was older, so managing stairs could have been difficult, but Pearl actually believed her family members were haunting the house. It also would seem that Pearl herself haunts the house. It was her childhood home, and she came back and died there, so definitely a possibility. So when I'm looking for a lot of experiences and such in this home, couldn't find a whole lot out there, but Ghost Adventures visited. So we're going to use a lot of the evidence, quote-unquote. I'm sure there was a lot of drama. (laughs) That they (laughs) gathered. You and I both watched this episode. It was on season 13, episode 10. So if you want to see what the house looks like in the inside of it, I encourage you to check that out. Heather Huerta is the curator of the house, and she co-founded Paranormal Movement Investigations, which has investigated the house since 2008, and they host ghost tours in the house. I also think that they host historical ghost tours in Porterville, too. So if you want to do something along those lines there, I would uh, check out Paranormal Movement Investigations. And it looked to me, Kelly, like they were doing overnight investigations there for like 25 bucks per person. Ooh, that's so. intriguing. It's not, you know, it's it's probably about, gosh, I want to say like five hours from my family's area in okay. Southern California. You so it'd be have a, to go do that. Yeah. And then overnight up there somewhere or something. Yeah. Or I guess we'd be overnighting at the house while we do an investigation well, and driving back and sleeping yeah. all day. <laughs> exactly. Why do we get into these things that we have to be up all night for? Because we think we're still in our 20s. <laughs> <laughs> She guided the Ghost Adventures crew, and while the crew was interviewing her, Aaron accidentally hit a window shade, the kind that rolls up, and he unfortunately broke it. This seemed to anger two of the family spirits, John and Pearl. At least that was according to a paranormal investigator in the house named Benny, who is a sensitive, and I wasn't quite sure, but I think Benny and Heather are married to each other. Ah, okay. I'm not quite positive about that, but it kind of seemed that that was the case. And they kept referencing that he was channeling the spirits, but he doesn't claim to be a psychic or a medium, I don't think. So I don't know how he was channeling stuff. But there was at one point that he said something in the, I did this rather than this happened. Right, right. So yeah. it was almost like he had something so that was speaking through them. him. Yes. He had Zach sit in the haunted chair while holding William Brooks' cane. Zach claimed to feel back pains and that he was having trouble breathing. He was also holding a spirit box and it said, need help. But when we listened to it on playback, because I couldn't tell what it was saying when they 
played it back, it sounded a lot to us like Zach's voice on the replay. Yeah, it was really odd. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not saying that they mixed in audio of him saying it, but it just was weird how much it sounded like Zach's voice. And Kelly, one of the many problems with Zach and the crew, besides the fact that they go in and act like they want to beat up the spirits and are right, get really into the provoking thing, is that they tend to focus on one thing, and it makes many of their conclusions seem false. Right. I understand we have a limited amount of time. They have an hour to show us about a house. And we know when you're doing investigations, you're there for hours and hours and hours. But when you focus on just one thing, you're missing a ton of stuff. So they've got the story on this chair and this chair. running with it. <laughs> and they focused on it for almost the entire program, which was cool to get the history and everything around it. But I was like, almost the entire family died in this house. Right. So, there's so much more to look into. Yeah. And a lot of other tragedies that were connected. Like they didn't even mention that this saddle that Edward had died in or had near him when he died or whatever was in this home. Pearl haunting the place. Didn't hear that from them. I heard that from other sources. So I just wish that they would give a full rounded thing rather than just we're going to focus on this one thing. All the stuff in this house belonged to the family and several pieces are connected to tragedy. So imagine the energy that could be attached to that stuff. Absolutely. The crew then interviewed a paranormal investigator named Scott Grunwald, who had suggested the location to Zach. He had sat in the chair on a previous visit and he claimed to feel a pain in his shoulder that was like a pencil slowly being shoved into his shoulder. Ouch. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. (laughs) At first, he thought he might be having a heart attack because he is middle-aged. And when he breathed, it got worse. I think we've all gotten those little gas bubbles that you get near your heart. You start breathing and it feels even worse. You're like, oh my God, I'm dying. Yeah, it feels like a little knife pushing in. Yes, Mm -hmm. So when he first sat down, like when Zach sat in the chair, the problem is he knows the story. Right. So when he starts talking about having this pain in his chest or whatever, I'm like, well, duh, the guy who sat in it was shot. (laughs) Duh. But I kind of got the feeling that this guy was being honest because he sat down in the chair and at first he's like, oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack. Right. Before Zach and the crew started their official investigation, Aaron started feeling really bad. He said that he felt as though he were going to pass out when he was sitting in front of one of the monitors. He looked at his Fitbit and his heart rate was 141 beats while sitting. That's really high. It is. I uh, had hyperthyroidism for years and I would have a resting heart rate of 120 and you just have the shakes and you just can feel your heart pounding constantly. And so I can't even imagine what he was feeling there. Something was definitely affecting him and Zach decided that he should not be part of the investigation to protect his well-being. Actually, that was not the case. Yeah, I mean, I totally (laughs) I would have been like, you know, if you're having some kind of medical thing going on here. Maybe you should sit this one out. Zach sent him in all by himself since something was affecting him. Yeah. So like I said, I would be like, maybe you shouldn't join us tonight. And instead, Zach's like, you go go in there by yourself. Take one for the team. Aaron did feel as though something electrical had passed through him before his heart rate went up. All the guys took turns sitting in the murder chair and each one claimed to have weird feelings and anxiety attacks. An SLS camera picked up an anomaly near the chair that Zach thought was a creature but we felt it was as the size of a child and it's possible that there could be some kind of child energy in the house. Yeah. I don't know for sure that a child ever died in the home, but you know, there were three children in this home growing up. So it could be some kind of a residual energy perhaps. There were some interesting words on the ovulus as well. Zach and the guys may have gotten some evidence or maybe not. The curator seemed to indicate in an article that they Hollywoodized everything. 
Yeah, I mean, we know they always have to add drama to a lot of these shows, so. And we definitely saw that with McPike Mansion, since we had actually been there and done the investigation and met the owners and the shaman and everybody. There was a lot of extras that were stirred up around that. Well, even now, as we're getting experienced with our paranormal investigating, there's not many times that you're going crazy, like, oh, my God, what was that? And Most of the time, it's just kind of a very calm, like, oh, that's weird. That what made that happen or but that's not as exciting for TV. No, (laughs) I don't think we'd be very exciting on TV at all. Hopefully we're exciting for podcasting. Well, Kelly, while I was looking into the Zalit house, I came across this other legend that's out of Porterville that is one of the strangest things I'd ever heard of. You're a big fan of gnomes, right? I love them. Do you think it's a possibility that there really are gnomes? Well, I'm not going to say no. (laughs) I mean, just kind of like I I believe that there could be fairies. Yeah. And I think that gnomes are kind of a variety of fairy. Yeah. When we talked about the the legend of fairies, we we talked about the fae folk and how many different varieties there are. And gnomes are one of them. Well, I'd like for them to be real. Yeah. Well, there (laughs) might be one in Porterville. So I found this legend. It was uh, shared by Jason Offit writing for Mysterious Universe. And it features this gnome in Porterville. When Tammy moved herself and her three children to the country house by the Thule River near Porterville, California, she didn't know something wicked waited for them. We always got the feeling of being watched, Tammy said. One spot on the farm especially put her on edge, the barn. The family animals, dogs, a cat, turkeys, chickens, and ducks avoided that rickety dark building. We'd had a lot more chickens and ducks, but they had started disappearing, Tammy said. I also noticed that none of the neighbor's animals or stray animals, for that matter, would go anywhere near that barn. It was without a doubt just creepy. She soon discovered why. One evening, my son, who was seven years old at the time, and I had just come back from grocery shopping, Tammy said. We parked and got out of the car, and as I was opening up the back to get the groceries out, I noticed a movement out of the corner of my right eye. It's always out of the corner of the eye. As she lifted a grocery sack from the car, she saw the movement again. This time I heard a very freaky, very evil sounding chuckle, she said. I looked in the direction of the sound and there standing about 50 yards from my son and I was what I can only describe as a gnome. The creature, about two to three feet tall, wore baggy black pants and a gold colored shirt. A salt and pepper beard ran from beneath a red pointed hat. That thing grinned at us and the creepy grin spread from ear to ear and its teeth were a gross brown and pointed or jagged, she said. It had a bulbous nose and large, deep-set eyes. Good grief. That's quite a vivid description there. Yeah. Well, you know what? It, it sounds obvious... like all my zombie gnomes that I have around the house. And it, it's like <laughs> seared into her brain because huh. it was so creepy. I also would have had to say, and I noticed a warm liquid running down my leg. Lovely. Because I would have peed my pants <laughs> if I saw that. She dropped the groceries and grabbed her son, the wicked little man cackling after her as she ran to the house. Tammy burst inside through the kitchen and slammed the door. As she tried to tell her daughters about her panic, something moved outside the kitchen window. She looked and saw the top of the thing's red-pointed hat. It had to be about 10 feet off the ground. What the hell? That's a big A gnome. Like, is he flying? Is he floating? He has to be because she said he was only about three feet tall. So if he's 10 feet off the ground, he had to have been floating or flying. That still sounds like a big gnome at three feet tall. (laughs) The thing eventually disappeared from the window and Tammy retrieved the groceries from the car. She never saw it again, 
but until the day she moved, she heard the gnome's creepy chuckle coming from the old barn. Although Tammy's family had gone, the gnome wasn't finished terrorizing whoever lived in that house. Charlie, her husband, their two-year-old twin girls, and two golden Labrador retrievers moved into the two-story house by the river in March 2010. The house was perfect for us, she said. Exactly what we were looking for, and we couldn't wait to move in. There are three bedrooms, a huge kitchen, dining room, and living room, and lots of windows all around it. The deck that opened off the back door overlooked the woods and the nearby Thule River. A deck in the front overlooked a pond. Charlie placed fairy, gnome, and toadstool yard ornaments around the pond and stocked it with Japanese koi fish to make it feel more like their home. That feeling wouldn't last. Makes you wonder, is there going to be a love story here where the gnome sees the other gnome from across the yard and comes running over? (laughs) God. (laughs) Trying to break the creep factor here because this is freaking me out. One day, while walking back from the river to the house with her daughters and their dogs, the dogs became riled. As they approached a rickety outbuilding Charlie called the shack, dogs began to snarl and bark, the hair on their back standing up. Something told me to run, so I grabbed a twin under each arm and ran for home, she said. Something about that shack gave me the creeps, especially at night, but I don't know why. She began to notice none of the animals, not even wildlife or stray cats, would go near the shack until the day she heard the fight coming from inside. It sounded like a cat was in a fight with something way bigger than it was, she said. Her husband grabbed a flashlight and ran to the shed. Just as he got to the door, the noise stopped. He went in and looked around with the flashlight. There was a cat. Oh, gosh. It was totally skinned on one side, and its neck looked as though something had taken a huge chunk out of it. Oh, my gosh. He stepped outside the shack to catch his breath, and when he looked back in, the cat was gone. There was Zombie a- cat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There was no way that cat moved by itself, she said. We were standing right there. Where did the cat go? They discovered the cat was the least of their worries. One night around 3 a.m., a raspy, gurgling singing woke Charlie and her husband from sleep. It was without a doubt the most hideous sound I've ever heard. It freaked us out. Charlie and her husband looked out their bedroom window and saw something that challenged their sanity. Standing by my pond, holding one of my garden gnomes, was what I could only describe as something out of a Grimm's fairy tale. The thing that was standing in our yard was hideous and grotesque. And as I said, Kelly, we do have a love story. He's holding the other gnome. And singing to it, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) A human-like creature stood under the bright light of the motion detector. It was two to three feet tall, with a long gray beard, maroon pants, baggy yellow shirt, brown vest, a dark waistcoat, and a reddish-brown pointed hat. The thing that made this creature really hideous was its eyes and teeth, she said. It looked like it was grinning, and its teeth were jagged and pointed. The eyes were little, beady, and dark and mean. Kelly, the thing that I really like about this story is that these two women don't know anything about each other, and they both are describing to the T. As the creature stared at Charlie and her husband, it reached into the pond and grabbed a koi, dropped the fish into its mouth, and swallowed. Charlie's husband pushed the window open a few inches and screamed at the creature, telling it to leave their yard or he'd call the police. The gnome grinned, laughed, and gave them the finger. (laughs) I didn't even know about that. (laughs) All righty then. Flipped him the bird. (laughs) They told the police they'd had an intruder, but the officers looking around their yard at 4 a.m. found only shoe prints the size of a small child. The gnome came back night after night, holding a yard ornament and eating their fish. They eventually moved the ornaments and put the fish into a tank in the house. They instantly realized they'd made a mistake. 
One night, after we had removed the fairies and gnomes and fish from the yard, the creature showed up at the usual time, 3 a.m., she said. When it found that the yard ornaments were gone and the fish were gone, it went crazy. It was yelling and screaming something that we couldn't understand, but we did understand that this thing was pissed and wanted us to know it. The gnome ran around the house, screaming and gurgling. Then Charlie realized that the dog door was unlocked. It was big enough for our dogs to go through it, and it would be big enough for that creature to go through it as well. I took off running down to the kitchen, and as I got there, the dogs had started barking like crazy at the doggy door. She shut and secured the dog door, then ran upstairs to shut the windows. A fear hit me like nothing I'd ever felt, and I ran back up to the twins' bedroom where they were both sound asleep in their cribs. Neither parent slept that night. They decided to leave the farm at Porterville. The last we heard of that creature was a very loud, screeching, cackling sound. It was under one of the living room windows, and when my husband went to check it out, he saw the top of that creature's hat under the window. Right then, we decided that we were out of there. We couldn't stay there with that creature. Did Tammy and Charlie live in the same house? I wanted to know, so I told Charlie about Tammy's experience. The description of that barn and everything else sounds just like it, and the Thule River runs right behind the house, Charlie had said. So this is what she's saying to the guy who wrote the article. Right. You know, the only thing that bugs me about this is why didn't they record any of it? That's true. It wasn't that many years ago. No, 2010, you had phones that could record things. And video cameras and all sorts of devices. Exactly. That's the only thing that bothers me. Especially when it was coming every single night at about the same time. You'd know to be expecting it. it. (laughs) Like clockwork, apparently. clearly was hanging out for a long period of time and wasn't afraid if they saw it. Right. Good point. Or at least get a picture. (laughs) Exactly. Her experience was too terrifying for her not to find out. It's too creepy to think that there are more of those creatures, she said. I would like to speak to those other people and find out if we were in the same house or close to it. I put Charlie in contact with Tammy. Charlie sent me an email and she described the house that she lived in. Tammy said, she started naming some of the side streets and I knew it was the same house or really close to it. The women eventually met and drove to the property. It definitely was the same place, Tammy said. As Tammy stood looking at the house where a three foot tall man with pointed teeth and evil cackle had laughed at her, she saw someone had torn down the barn. Even with that shack gone, the whole place still had an eerie feel to it. And I don't know if that is because of what we dealt with while living there or just the place itself. I don't think I'll ever be going back there again. Before they left, the women approached their old house and knocked on the door. The current resident did not want them there. She was just hateful. And when we tried to ask her about the barn, she pretty much told us to get lost and not in those nice words. Charlie was equally taken aback. We tried to ask about the shack and if she had ever experienced anything while it was there, but she didn't want to talk to us. In fact, she told us to leave the property. She didn't have to tell me twice. I was happy to get away from there. So apparently it was the same house. I would think that the shack was torn down, not necessarily just because it was old, but maybe they were having issues and thought if they got rid of the shack, they could get rid of whatever this was. Certainly. And while we're referring to it as a gnome and a creature, three foot tall, it could have been somebody who had some kind of dysmorphic... Could be. ...genetics or something. Enjoyed sushi. Yeah, and maybe they were run off into the woods and actually lived in the woods. I mean, there are people who do live like wild people in the woods. So that That could be what was going on here. I don't know. But it it sounds like a creepy enough creature that I wouldn't want to be anywhere around it. But yes, it would have been great if we had some actual pictures or even audio, if it's singing or cackling or whatever to capture all these things. Definitely. That's the problem with the paranormal. So little of it ever gets documented in any way other than personal experience. And so you just have to go with, 
I'm going to believe that these two women were telling the truth and that this story is a legit story. And they both had a very creepy experience that drove them from their home. So is the story of a little gnome the real deal, Kelly, do you think? I don't know. Are members of the Zalad family haunting their former home? That is is for you you to decide. decide. I want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Of course, you can also leave it in a variety of other places. Be sure to be following us on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. If you're a patron, any of those places, also the website, you can leave us messages. And we did get a message over on the website. This was from Aubrey, and it was in reference to episode 232, which featured the Saltaire Resort. I believe this place is haunted. I went there as a kid with my mom before it was a venue. There were renovations being done and three stage carts from a train. I saw something and the feeling was horrible. As an adult, I visited in the evening when they were making it a venue. There were footsteps in the gravel close to us and then I felt a sting on my foot. When I looked at it when we left, there was a long, thin, white mark on my toe. I compared the mark to my railroad tie I collected in high school and it matched. Weird. Yeah. It was almost like something picked up a railroad tie and scraped it across her toe. Thank you for sharing that, Aubrey. For those of you who listened to the Halloween episode, Josh shared some stories on there. And one of them was about that haunted cabin number 13. He actually went by there a couple of days ago and he shared the picture with me. I will go ahead and put that up on Instagram. Awesome. For you guys to check that out. He said, also as an avid listener, I love the four paw episode. I used to walk by there and just stand and stare up at the windows, hoping to see a ghost from outside. I must have creeped out the people eating there. And seriously, you got to check out Summit Avenue in St. Paul. My hometown is about 30 minutes east of there. I forgot to mention that there is a Ringling Brothers buggy or small carriage in the Warden's House Museum. I have no idea how it got there, but being somewhat close to Baraboo and in between St. Paul, maybe he stopped by. Very cool. Ah, So I thought that was cool. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Josh Cobb. We're going to be burying you under an obelisk headstone. Thank you so much for supporting HGB. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. And he eventually ended up with Siegfried. 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 The Zalad House in Porterville, California, is like a time capsule glimpse into the family. Into the family. Well, it basically <laughs> is into the family, but... Into the life of a family. On the upper floor, there's a spirit that's believed to be the... Lord. One evening, my son, who was seven years old at the time, and I had just come back from grocery shopping. Grocery shopping. 
Whenever it's those S's, we always screw them up. She looked and saw the top of the a dark waistcoat, a dark waistcoat, coast, 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 coast. It's I a waistcoat from the space coast. <laughs> Charlie placed fairy, gnome, and toadstool yard art. <laughs> what kind of ornaments are those? <laughs> Creative ones. <laughs> Kelly, I would like to place an ornament in our front yard. 